In just a moment, we will turn to the Old Testament book of Kings. But before we do, a spoiler alert. The book of Kings is about kings. It begins with the death of King David and the rise of Solomon. And from there, it charts every succession and reign that followed over hundreds of years. But this is not a triumphal tale. The story of Israel's kings is a story that goes from bad to worse. When Solomon died, his kingdom broke apart. The north seceded, and soon there were two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. This occurred without a war, but almost immediately after the split, the northern king, Jeroboam, realized that he had a problem. Jerusalem was in the south. Jeroboam became worried that if his people kept making pilgrimages south to visit the temple in Jerusalem, they would remember the good old days with David and Solomon, and they would break their loyalty to him. So, the Bible says, the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel. And so with these golden calves began a struggle for the soul of the northern kingdom. With few exceptions from that time on, Israel's kings were bent on worshiping idols and putting their trust in other gods. And King Ahab was the worst one yet. He and his wife Jezebel made altars to a god called Baal. But this time the Lord God had an answer. Elijah the Tishbite would be God's prophet. Elijah would speak and act for God. All Elijah had to do was to say it and it would happen. So when Elijah said, there's going to be no more rain until I say so, a drought began. And that is the situation that we are about to step into, a time of drought, a time of idols, when the prophet Elijah first encountered our hidden figure, the widow of Zarephath. Let us pray together the prayer for illumination. Loving God, by the power of your spirit, Help us to approach your word. Remind us of those people whose stories we might not always notice. Show us how these hidden figures fit into your larger purposes. And help us to hear and understand from their lives how you are calling us to live today. Amen. This is 1 Kings chapter 17 beginning at the 8th verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, 
bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. The town where I used to live in New Mexico is in a food desert. That means that if you want anything fresh or nutritious to eat, like fruit or vegetables or meat, you cannot find it there. You have to drive 30 miles west to the Walmart in Gallup, or you can drive 30 miles east to the Walmart in Grants. There's a Whole Foods in Albuquerque if you have the gas money and the whole afternoon. It's 100 miles each way. The town where I used to live does have a convenience store. You can buy bright pink bologna and yellow mustard and white bread. Spam is very popular. So are the flaming hot Cheetos and the pickles, which are marinated in Kool-Aid. It's tasty, I guess, if that's your thing. But it's not nourishing. There's nothing to satisfy. There's nothing to sustain. When I lived in that town, I had a job and a college degree. I was a high school teacher. And on my salary, I could easily afford gas and food and rent and more. The poverty of that place did not cut close to me but it did for my students and for their families. For the boy who could barely lift his head off the desk on Monday morning, who we'd try to coax out with the granola bars we kept in the supply cabinet. For the mother who waited until everyone had left before she knocked quietly on my portable door to ask if she could borrow gas money. For the many kids who ate all their food at school free breakfast and free lunch, but no dinner waiting at home. It is still hard for me to imagine what that was like, to imagine the scarcity that existed for those who did not have the means that I did to make it work in that town. For them, the desert was so wide. Economists argue about how to measure poverty especially extreme poverty. There are lots of different studies and they rely on different models and definitions of what it means to be poor. It can be hard to wrap your head around. 
But one study that is helping me imagine poverty comes out of Princeton University, and this study suggests that 5.3 million Americans are living on less than $4 a day, including what they receive from government programs. $4 a day. I've been thinking lately about how I would do that. Coffee is a non-negotiable, but I could make it at home with a few cents worth of milk and sugar. I could make a sandwich for lunch with the cheapest, thinnest slices of bread at H-E-B. Turkey and cheese would be nice. PB&J is cheaper. Let's say I splurge on the cold cuts and I save the peanut butter for later. I once heard that if you mix peanut butter and soy sauce into a pot of rice, it almost tastes like pad thai. But what is pad thai without some chicken and green onions and chopped peanuts? I mean, come on. Pretty soon I'm sailing over the budget. I wonder how long the widow of Zarephath had been poor. It might have started with the drought, but it probably started sometime after her husband died. In the patriarchy of the ancient world, widows were unprotected. They had to rely on God and the community's mercy. A widow's best hope was for her son to reach adulthood and to look out for her. But the widow of Zarephath did not have that assurance yet. Her son was just a boy. So life was precarious. Drought just made it worse. It was probably a long time since the meal jar had been full, since the oil had flowed, since there had been a hefty log to toss on the fire. The prophet Elijah was starting to feel the pinch too. For a while after the drought started, Elijah's needs had been taken care of. God had set him up by a little brook called Cherith, east of the Jordan. So Elijah had had water to drink. And twice a day, some ravens came with bread and meat for him to eat. It was the height of luxury. But the drought persisted, and the brook started to dry, and that's when God pushed Elijah to Zarephath in Sidon. And that is not a short journey, by the way. It was 85 miles that Elijah walked through the wilderness without water or ravens, out of Israel, and into a land where God was not known. So when Elijah first sees the widow, he is far from home and he is fading fast. And immediately, their conversation turns to scarcity. Do you notice that? Everything that Elijah and the widow say to each other centers on how little there is. Bring me a little water, says Elijah. Maybe a morsel of bread in your hand. I have nothing that's baked, says the widow. Only a handful of flour, only a little oil, and a couple of sticks, literally two. In this moment, we can see that the widow's vision of the future has narrowed to a point. Her hope is gone. Sure, she's out there. She's scraping together those things that make for life. But as far as the widow is concerned, she is working only toward her death. This will be her final act to gather, to cook, to eat, and to die. Her words 
I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Scarcity alone cannot produce that despair. Studies show that the happiest countries and the richest countries are not all the same countries. Wealth and stability are ingredients for overall happiness. War zones and disaster areas are clearly miserable. But as of this year, the United States, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, ranks only 19th for happiness. In terms of happiness, we barely outpace Mexico, even though we have a GDP six times as large. Though you and I don't really need a research study to grasp this truth, I imagine that many of us have known lean times that turned out to be simpler and happier times for us. While I was traveling in Ecuador as a college student, I encountered more than a few people with a message for me as an American. One in particular I remember, a day laborer in a small mountain town. This man deliberately took me aside and he said, you need to know. You Americans need to know, you need to tell everyone you know how we are happy here, though we have nothing. We have dollars to our names. You need to know that you you could be happy with less. I honestly doubt that he shook me by my shoulders, but somehow in my memory, he always shakes me just a little. I need to be shaken. I have known so much abundance, but I have a mindset of scarcity. And it's this way of thinking that breeds despair in me and you and all of us, regardless of what is in our bank accounts, a mindset of scarcity. According to author Lynn Twist, this mindset of scarcity is a faulty belief system that's built on three myths. First, we believe that there is not enough. Second, we believe that more is better. And third, we believe that that is just the way it is and it cannot be changed. This is the myth of scarcity. And like the Israelites who put their faith in Baal, many of us have put our faith in this myth, this belief that there isn't enough, so I better grab more. It explains so much. It explains how I see a pepperoni pizza. It explains how if you're eating with me, I always know how many pieces you have had. And I know how many pieces I have had. It explains how I am always hoping that you will get full first. I'm hoping that you will forget the score that I am so meticulously keeping. And then in the end, I will get to have one of your pieces. That is the myth of scarcity and it is hardwired in me. But really how much of life is founded on this myth? Look around. I think of those celebrities who paid tens of thousands of dollars more for their kids to have perfect SAT scores. I think about practices like mountaintop removal and coal mining. Mountaintop removal destroys beauty. It 
creates air and water pollution. And now scientists believe it has damaged the health of thousands in Appalachia. I think of so many business practices that put profits over people. I think about the dog-eat-dog competition many of us feel in our workplaces. The competition we feel if we're out on the dating scene. The competition we may feel in our own families when it seems that there is just not enough love to go around. We are shaped by the sense that there is not enough. We can only see how little flour, how little oil. These things are facts that cannot be changed. So when God's prophet arrives, we throw up our hands with the widow. The word of God that comes from Elijah is so unoriginal. It's so predictable. But for us, it is so needed. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of the empty pantry. Do not be afraid to be poor in stuff or poor in spirit. Do not be afraid of the demotion. Do not be afraid of the divorce. Do not be afraid of whatever drought you are facing. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid. Because God is enough, God's grace is sufficient. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail. And it was so. The widow was able to provide from her resources for Elijah, her son, and for herself. They all ate well that day and for many days that followed. For us, the ending is not so tidy. This myth is hard to bust. We need help to see past scarcity, to see what is there and to share. Right now, the world's farmers produce enough food to feed 10 billion people. That's more than everybody. And yet, nearly 1 billion of us go hungry. Now, that's nobody's fault in particular, not yours or mine exactly. The primary issue is one of waste on a global scale. 30 to 40% of all food produced is wasted. In less developed countries, this food is going to waste because of a lack of delivery structure and a lack of refrigeration. But in developed countries like our own, it is factors like the low cost of food and the big size of portions. These are the factors that lead to waste. It seems that we cannot recognize abundance when it is right there on the plate in front of us. We throw abundance away. But we can change. Change is what the gospel is all about. Water into wine, one loaf into many, weeping into dancing, sinners into saints, death into life. We can change. In the light of God's grace, we can learn to see abundance. 
Strangers start to look like friends you haven't met. Lunch in the break room becomes a holy gathering of God's people. Maybe a spare bedroom will start to look like home for someone who really needs one. In the light of God's grace, we can learn to see abundance. It's really there. The delayed departure becomes an hour for prayer. The traffic jam, a time for reflection or honest conversation. We can learn to see abundance in the everyday. And we can learn to see it in the stories of our lives. Forgiveness that was given when we didn't deserve it. Words of love that have sustained us through the years that echo in memory. The loss that made space for something new. The grief that gave us common ground with others. Spiritual gifts in ordinary people and the image of God lavished on every single one. There's abundance hidden in plain sight. It's a challenge to see, but by the grace of God, it cannot be grasped or clung to. And that makes it especially easy to share. And so, in seeing abundance and sharing it, may we begin to glorify God and to enjoy God, forsaking myths and the gods of our own making. May it be so. Amen.